Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Gary Mashuris of Silver Ring Value Partners. He's an MIT grad with a methodical, logical approach to value investing. It's a fascinating discussion and it's coming up right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. I love the story about the name Silver Ring Partners. How did you come to name the firm Silver Ring Partners? Sure. I mean, so basically, you know, what happened was, uh, you know, we're immigrants. So my family is Jewish. We grew up in the former Soviet Union and came over here uh, when I was 10. And in the process, we lived in Italy, in a little town called Ladispoli. And uh, we didn't have a lot of money. The Russians pursued pretty much everything we had in order to let us go. And so people, immigrants would sell things on the bazaar, um, you know, kind of to the Italians. And one of the things I had to leave behind was this little silver ring because, uh, sorry, a little gold ring, you know, uh, kind of a mis- uh, misspoke there. And there was a present my mom gave me uh, that she had that when she was little, but we had only like one ring per person that we could bring out. So uh, we had to bring more valuable jewelry. So I had to leave that ring behind. So in Italy, when I finally made some money selling things to the Italians, um, I was passing by this jewelry store on the way to the bazaar where the, the market was, and there was the same exact gold ring uh, that I left behind, almost, you know, not exactly. And this is before the euro, uh, so they had the lira, and you know, the, the lira was so devalued they talked in thousands. So mill uh, uh, was a thousand lira. That was like a mill was maybe seventy cents at the time or something like that equivalent. And I found this gold ring for about know five mil so i very proudly you know i was this 10 year old urchin you know uh, from the bazaar cl- uh, walked into the store clutching uh, you know this five mil note you know the guy you know the store owner looked up looked at me kind of weird and i saw that i had some money said okay he's not here to like you know sell me something or something like that and i you know looked at the display and there was that gold ring uh for five mil and all the rings near it were 30 40 50 mil so not only was I going to restore the ring I'd kind of lost in the immigration process, but I was also going to uh, get a bargain. So I proudly gave him my five mil. He gave me the ring. And then two weeks later, I found out why it was so cheap. And, uh, you know, the uh, gold polish uh, wore off, gold plating wore off, and it was just a silver ring. Now, I don't think he cheated me. I just didn't understand Italian. And so I think it was meant to be a silver ring that was gold plated. But I think it taught me two things. Um, one is that I think you want to do your own deep research. And two, that sometimes things are cheap for a reason. Because I know as value investors, we frequently are attracted to uh, things that are inexpensive. And I think that was a good reminder to not just blindly follow that and also do your own thinking about why something is potentially inexpensive. So how did you get started in investing? I see that you're an MIT grad. What did you, what did you study at MIT? Yeah, so that's a good question. It's funny how I started. So I was studying economics and computer science. I was a dork, still am. Uh, you know, I 
and did the double major and I was I still had nightmares about not finishing one elective to get the credit enough credits for both majors which now obviously they I clearly understand it. it's completely irrelevant you know which boxes you check but at that time it seemed really important and so this was during the tech bubble and uh you know I was fortunate to buy I think the only tech stock that went down in early 2000 and I say fortunate because so, you know, my family, as I mentioned, we were immigrants. I was poor. I was working a summer job and then had two jobs during the school year in addition to the two majors. And I said maybe had $1,000 or so in the bank. So I went on the Fidelity Brokerage site and I read a report uh, about this company. Um, and Cisco was supposed to be a natural acquirer for them. So I'm like, great. I'm going like, to double my money. You know, It's better than working. So all the other tech stocks are going up. I'm smart. I'm studying the subjects at MIT. You know, I'm going to go and I'm going to like make some easy money. So I buy the stock and it goes down and I'm sitting there. I mean, I'm watching the stock like a hawk. I'm doing all the things I know now not to do, but I'm like, I'm not even going to mention places. I looked up the stock quotations, you know, I'll leave that to your imagination, but you know, I was obsessed and it was just kept going down. So I was kind of like saying like, what's going on? Like, why? And just around that time, Warren Buffett came and he, uh, you know, spoke at Sloan at the school, business school at MIT. And I went to listen to him speak. I didn't know much about him and thought, you know, wealthy, successful investor. Let's you know, just learn. And that kind of immediately resonated. You know, he was talking about long term, intrinsic value, uh, you know, competitive advantage, all the things that now I take for granted on a second nature. But they were new at the time and made me realize that I was speculating. I wasn't investing. And that I basically needed to just throw what I was doing away and start from scratch. So started reading everything I could about value investing, and uh, you know that's kind of the story. And so your your first uh, job out of MIT, uh, where did where did you go? So yes, I was lucky. Uh, so I uh, I ended up with Fidelity and Equity Research, which I have no idea why they hired me. Literally, I'm not being falsely modest. Like, you know, I was uh, you know kind of a a tech geek, you know, I, I was probably more focused on computer science. I had a, you know, internship at JP Morgan and in their internal consulting services, but I had no finance background. I was probably overly quantitative for them, but uh, I actually think the reason they hired me is because I was pretty sure I wasn't going to take the job. So um, my, my mother, my father passed away at an early age. My father, my mother lived in New Jersey and I had plans to go back to uh, there to live near her. Um, you know, when I graduated to you know, be on, around to help out. And so I interviewed Fidelity, to be honest, kind of like for fun. I don't want to, it sounds earlier. Like, I guess there was a chance I could take the job, which I guess there was because I did take it eventually in the end. But I basically uh, went into this with such a carefree attitude because I had a job off from JP Morgan to work in the investment management division. So I kind of felt like, hey, you know, I can just be myself, interview and just chat with these famous investors and maybe learn a little bit and it'll be cool. Which, by the way, I know now is totally the perfect attitude to exude confidence and like actually impress people as opposed to like, please, please hire me. I promise I'll do it. Like that doesn't work, right? It's like this behavioral thing, right? You know, uh, you, the more you are desperate to get something, the least, less people are likely to give it to you. So you know, I came in and I kept talking to them through multiple rounds until, you know, director of research calls me and I'm like, that's very strange. Usually rejection letters come in the mail, like from HR. And so he calls me up and uh, he's like, well, Gary, we would like to make you an offer uh, to work for us. And there were seven associates that year um, out of 3000 resumes, something like that. So I was like, well, 
can I work from New York? <laughs> and she's like, nope, you have, but we'll pay you enough so you can fly to New York. <laughs> you, know, how do you, you know, I'm like, hmm, no, I, I don't think I'll think about it. And my mother was insistent. I was actually going to pass it that, uh, pass on the offer, but she thought that that was the best thing for my career. I think she was right. And I, I would say I was very lucky. Now, when I talk to young people uh, or young, I'm not that old, younger people uh, or people earlier in their career, I really stress investing specifically in mentorship because I think like if you think about great investors, a lot of them had a really important formative mentor early on and they wouldn't be who they are as an investor uh, if they didn't have that mentorship relation, mentoring relationship. And so I was lucky that I got a chance to work with someone today who I consider to be exceptional a gentleman by the name of Joel Tillinghast who manages a low price stock fund in Fidelity. You know, you know, he's beaten the market by like 4% per year over a quarter century across tens of billions of dollars in assets in small, mostly in small stocks. Imagine like running over 10 billion of assets in small stocks and having a portfolio of 800 plus securities. Like if I gave you that profile without the outcome, you would say absolutely zero chance he's beaten the market at all, maybe by like 50 basis points. But he is incredible, and he had a very logical, rational process. Because I'm a very linear thinker, right? I know myself. I'm a systems engineer by training. I like building a process, slowly evolving it, and then kind of think of it as module. You build a module, you then tinker it, improve it, test it. That's kind of how I was trained. And it's one thing to read about Buffett or listen to him speak once, then be on your own. It's a completely different setup if you have an actual mentor that you can, you know, talk to and say, hey, you know, like, why is this? Or, or more importantly, to tell you when you're being stupid. I remember one time, you know, by the way, Joel, I'm one of the more verbose people out there, as you probably are learning, but Joel is one of the more laconic kind of uh, people out there, and he would rarely say much. And I remember uh, one morning I showed up to my cube, and Fidelity had a rating system. Uh, one was a strong buy. Uh, two was a buy, three is a hold, four is a sell, five is a strong sell. So one through five. And he, Joel left me a note on my desk and had my stocks, my tickers, and my coverage, my ratings uh, in order of like best rating to low, uh, to you know, buys to sells, and then ROE next to each one. And I kind of, I think I got his point and I was like vehement and I ran into his office and I'm like, but Joel, I get what you're saying. I'm recommending the cheap stocks that have low ROE, but they, you know, we're value investors. It's not just ROE, it's whether it's mispriced. And he kind of glanced up at me, like he was looking at his 10K or any report, glanced up at me and said, mm-hmm. And then he went back. <laughs> so that, but so it's not like he spent hours talking to me, but it's these little nudges and he's kind of shortening the learning cycle, which on its own, investing is super long. That really helped me. And I was very lucky to uh, be working with like a living investing legend, which I consider Joel to be. So what's what's his process and what did you take from that process that you include in your own? Yeah, and I remember having lunch with Joel once and I said like, how did you develop your process? I was maybe in my second year of being an associate of Fidelity. And, uh, you know, because Joel had a chance, Peter Lynch actually hired Joel and he had a chance to work with Peter earlier in his career. And Joel said something that really stuck with me. He said, well, Gary, I didn't really think I was, I, I, I could be a good stock picker. So I wanted to have a process that really didn't rely on that. And at first I was like, well, what does that mean? Like, aren't we all picking stocks? But then I think I understood what he mean. uh, means. He, what he means is that he didn't trust himself to really predict 
which business was going to have an outstanding bright future that was you know far and beyond above everyone else and so he invested in a way to minimize error and that led him to search for predictable businesses so when i think about joel and i think this is a big part of my process even though you know this is 20 years ago so i've grown as an investor and I've certainly evolved based on my own strengths and weaknesses, which is something I recommend when I teach a value investing seminar. I always tell people, don't clone, you know, don't copy people blindly. Try to learn what you can from people and then adapt it to your own circumstances, strengths and weaknesses, because you're not Warren Buffett and you don't have his situation or his uh, strengths and weaknesses. So be yourself, but just learn from the. So I was able to learn that the, like what we're doing is predicting businesses, right? Is invest, you know, investing, you know, you having, you're making this arrogant statement when you buy a, a stock, let's say, and you're saying that the price is wrong and the market participants, you know, who are currently in agreement with the stock is at 10 are completely off, not by a little bit, but by a lot, right? Presumably as a fundamental value investor. And so the question is how predictable, because you, you're trying to predict usually a range of values and you're trying to find situations where based on your range, the stock is an incredible bargain. At least that's what I'm trying to do. The problem comes when you're trying to predict unpredictable. So I'll give you an example from one of early in my career. Um, there was a company called Faro, and the ticker is FOE, like friend of O. Uh, and it was some kind of a specialty chemical company, did some ceramic glazes, a hodgepodge of things, with five divisions. And so I was very happy. I was, you know, I read security analysis. I was very Ben Grahamian. And I said, okay, they have, if I, their return on invested capital has been 11%. Based on that, approximately mid-cycle normalized earnings should be at $2.50. Voila, you know, I think $40 are approximately reasonable intrinsic value for that. And the stock is at low 20, so I'm getting a dollar for 50, 55 cents in the dollar. Very standard kind of val beginner value investing kind of process, I would say. Uh, and, um, like 10 years later, I had a chance to look back and it's really humbling because I wasn't off by like 10 or 20%. Like the actual mid-cycle earnings for over the next cycle ended up being 25 cents, right? And so you have something like that happen to you and you ask why, not like why and you're crying under the table. It also <laughs> happens, you know, that's different. I'm not going to talk about those moments. But like, why did I make such a big mistake? And I think you can say, well, maybe I need to improve my estimating techniques, right? Maybe the lesson you draw is that, well, if only I followed this and this and this methodology, I would be so much better and I could narrow in the range. I think the right lesson is a different lesson, which is some businesses are inherently more predictable than others, and they will remain so beyond the next year or two. And they're just endemic to the kind of business they are, the industry dynamics, the competitive advantage or the lack thereof and so forth. So I think that searching for that predictability and therefore eliminating a pretty good majority of the universe from consideration uh, is something that I learned from Joel. And that's from, from Joel and frankly, from a number of humbling experiences, which is you know, how I think a lot of good investors learn is that you know, they realize that this is a humbling endeavor and anyone who comes in thinking I am like awesome, amazing, rarely make mistakes, you know, they're either too, uh, too inexperienced or you know, delusional, I think. I think that uh, what I've got from Joel is focus on predictable, stable businesses run by 
um, honest people. But the second thing I think I learned from Joel is I asked him, like, how do we as value investors, how can we maintain a long-term horizon? Like, how does that work, right? And he said, well, I think it only makes sense to have a long-term time horizon if the value of what you're buying is growing. And then I kind of stuck, I'm like, hmm. And I think it took me like maybe a couple of years to fully understand that. But, you know, think about the standard mental model that value investors have. There's a price or a range of prices, but let's just say we just represent the range by the midpoint, just for simplicity. But there's a, 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 a value and then there's a price and the gap will close, right? Well, I think that a lot of people focus on the price to value gap and fewer people are focused on maybe less so now, but in general among value investors on what's happening to the value. And I think with Joel's point is that if the value is increasing at reasonable rates, then even if it takes five years to close the gap or something very long, you'll still get a very competitive internal rate of return in, on your investment. On the other hand, if you're buying a melting ice cube and the value is really dropping and you know, you really can't afford to have a long time horizon. You need the price to value gap to close right now, or like this year, because if you wait another couple of years, yeah, it's gonna close, but maybe it's gonna close the other way. And so I think one, the other thing that I got from Joel from this is how do you structure your investment process to have time truly on your side? One of the ways that you deviate from Joel Lowe is you say that he had 800 securities, whereas you run a much more concentrated portfolio than that. So uh, why do that? And, and what was the reason for the departure? Yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't want to speak for Joel because I'm not qualified, you know, but my guess is, uh, and this is an educated guess, but I'll leave it at that, is that if he were in the wild, he wouldn't necessarily have 800 securities. I think, and maybe this, you know, built in a little bit why did i go out why did i leave the firm of uh like the big firms and kind of went out on my own is when you have a lot of assets right and you have various parameters and frankly let's say you're a small cap manager and you have billions of dollars you can't be con that concentrated mathematically right um you just will cross the threshold of ownership on the securities and you have to have more it's just math but let's say hypothetically stylistically so i think that you know, uh, Joel had this cartoon once that, that really stuck with me. So a guy walks into a store and uh, he asks uh, the storekeeper, he says, I want high quality and low price. And the storekeeper says, sure, I have both. Which one do you want? <laughs> right. And the kind of the punchline here is that, you know, well, if you want, you know, we talked earlier about quality and predictability and having honest management and having value that's hopefully at least not declining, but maybe growing over time. It doesn't have to be rapid growth. I'm not saying that at all, but at least the, it's not a melting ice cube, right? That eliminates a huge portion of um, you know, the universe. Too many businesses just don't have the track record that I would need to assess them. Um, they don't have uh, the economic characteristics. They might not have the management and so forth. And then if you really want a big margin of safety component on the price side, that's infrequent, right? And by the way, it should be infrequent. Like, because think about like the purpose of like secondary markets isn't for guys like me to make money for my partners. The, the point of, second, of, uh, of secondary market is to support the primary market, which is where you connect providers of capital with you know, users of capital companies, right? So if the secondary markets were vastly inefficient, most of the time the price was wildly off, that would really damage the primary market and essentially increase the cost of capital for companies. So you want, as a society, 
fairly efficient markets most of the time. So the deviations when they do happen are infrequent, right? So you overlay a smaller universe of potential thing, uh, you know, things to consider that passes the quality of filter. And then with a big margin of safety, going back to the idea that you really can't tell if a stock is 10, 15, even 20% of the value. Like maybe you can, I don't want to speak for you, but I can. And so you really want a big enough gap so that it's crystal clear, like the old Ben Graham, you know, kind of parable of looking at a man across the street and not having to measure him to determine if he is tall. You just want to see like, that's pretty tall dude. You know, uh, he could be on the basketball team, you know, uh, for me, yeah. then you're, then it's good. But it's like, is he six one or is he's five twelve? I can't really, you know, that, 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 that's not what you want. So I think it naturally leads me to concentration. And I think that the other thing to think about, I wrote an article on this is diversification and concentration is not an input, right? It's an output of both your process and then your environment. So think about it this way, right? What's the cost of diversification? The cost of diversification is that is there's two costs. One is the cost in terms of time, right? It takes you more time to underwrite additional investments. Um, maybe you solve for it with having an army of analysts, but if if but chances are you still want to do your own underwriting of some sort, even if you have an army of analysts. So there is time. But there's also the fact that you know, there is a slope to that line, meaning the N plus one investment is likely to be less undervalued or less attractive than the nth investment and so forth and so on, right? And so there are market environments when the slope of that line is very steep and down, meaning the, and the next investment after the current investments you have would be much less undervalued than your current bunch. And then there is time in the market where that line is very flat or almost flat, meaning that the next, the N plus one investment is almost as undervalued or just as undervalued as your worst current investment, right? And so you don't wanna be dogmatic about concentration and say, I have to own exactly 12 stocks because I don't know, like I put in a PowerPoint slide somewhere, that's stupid. Um, I think you have to think about why are you doing the things you're doing and what are you trying to accomplish? In my case, I want at least decent quality I'm not requiring the highest quality, but decent quality. And I want a really undervalued price that naturally leads to concentration. But then how concentrated is also a function of the environment because I would much rather have 20 great investments than 10 if, there's, if I'm not giving anything up. But if I'm giving up expected return just to say I'm more diversified beyond a certain point, I don't want to diversify Part of it, I know a lot of investors talk about it, there is this threshold of where, they, I mean, people to call it the sleep at night uh, threshold. Uh, I sleep just fine, at least based on stocks. What they find, so I use, I like to hike and I like to think about stocks. I'll hike in the middle of the day. I've actually stopped looking at stock prices in the middle of the day, which has been a blessing because it's a bad habit. If you're doing it, stop. You know, view the viewer. No, I'm with you. It. I'm with you. I 100% agree. It's that it, it's uh, it's freeing to not look until after the close, and even then, I wouldn't look until the end of the week. Yeah, and I mean, I, I actually started. I put all my orders now, um, you know, outside of market hours, based on limits, based on my values, and because my like, if I'm going to miss some intraday low, fine, you know, like that's not the game. But back to my point. So I like to hike to dwell, kind of, and see what thoughts, almost like a meditation, um, see what thoughts bubble up, right? And if a stock keeps bubbling up, like not in a positive way, not in like, oh, I wish I could buy more shares, but in like, 
hmm, like, you know, is this too big a position of, hmm, do I really believe that the business is as decent as I think it is? That's a sign that you probably should reduce the position to me. I have more, I have very like mathematical guidelines for position size. I have, I have small as 5%, medium as 10, large as 15. And to get to the higher end, to get to a 10 or 15, you can't just be a cheap stock. You also have to be a, a pretty good uh, business. So I make sure that the quality bar rises as the position size increases as one way to manage risk. But even within that context, I, I kind of listen to my mind. It's like, if this stock keeps bothering me, you know, maybe it shouldn't be a 15% position. You, by the way, this usually doesn't happen about like 5% positions. This happens when something is like 15% plus and I'm like struggling with it. That's a sign like, let's just make it slightly less because that it taxes my mind. That means I'm uncomfortable there somewhere. I don't want to rely on gut feel too much, but it's important to, maybe it's my process telling me something in a way that I need to listen to. Uh, given that these opportunities that are high quality and undervalued are rare, why do these opportunities exist in the market on occasion? Yeah, so I, I'm a big believer in behavioral finance, right? And so, I mean, frankly, that probably that's the only explanation for mispricing that makes sense. The question is, why, like you said, why do they exist? Most of them they don't, right? Sometimes you have, uh, a man, you know, the usual time horizon arbitrage that value investors always talk about. And that's very real because you go to a bunch of PMs in their suits in their offices who are waiting for their bonus and I get paid in one and three year numbers. I was one of them. So I know, I know, I know, I know where they live. Um, and like, you know, you give them the following proposition. Um, you are going to get a 20% CAGR in the stock, but the first uh, four years will be flat and negative. It all comes in year five. How about it? And they will all say no, you know, like meaning maybe in an interview they'll say yes, but in their portfolios they'll say no because they'll get fired or they won't get, you know, they won't get paid. They like to get paid. So uh, there is a real um, kind of institutional imperative out there that leads to short-termism. Plus our own minds, we all like to eat, you know, a cookie today, except for like whatever the point one percent of the people who pass the cookie test and they're super smart and they will. Or something like that. That's about how long people can defer gratification as adults as well. So uh, regardless, I think that that's a pattern that exists. I think you also, and this is something I learned from like reading Seth Klarman stuff, you know, I think or Joel Greenblatt's kind of more special situations, forced or uneconomic selling, right? Um, so why does it occur? Sometimes it's the classic spin-off, you know, small ugly duckling uh, being spun off. The owners of uh, the old parent don't want it. So they're selling it regardless of price because they have a four basis point position that came from their 50 basis point position from the, and they just don't want to do the work and it's four bips and it doesn't matter and flush it goes. So that's a great uh, opportunity to look at things because they're not competing with you analytically. They're not studying the company really hard and saying, gee, you know, is it mispriced? Um, I think Klarman uh, talks about like the ugly ducklings or complexity, like ugly ducklings and complexity naturally repulses people. So they don't even do the work. And I was, I was a victim to this. You know, I remember talking to an analyst about post maybe 10 plus years ago on the old uh, news corp. And we were at lunch and I was telling him, well, you know, what about the newspaper business is in a declining blah, blah, blah. 
and he kind of politely smiled and nodded. And then in a year, I realized what an idiot I was because his point was that even if you assume the newspaper business is worth zero, the rest of the assets are worth more than um, you know the stock was trading for. And I missed it. I, there were other stocks that were attractive as well. So I don't feel completely terrible, but it was a behavioral mistake because I fell for it just like every other investor, almost every other investor and focusing on the one problematic area to the exclusion of the rest. And that's a common pattern. So like I call it the good business, business, bad business pattern. Like the way it works in the generic form is let's say the company is earning a dollar a share and it's trading at $10 uh, or something like that. But that dollar is comprised of plus two from division A and minus one from division B, right? So essentially the market is valuing the negative earnings as that division B is worth negative. And all of a sudden some management wakes up or some activist comes in or something and let's say they just shut down division B, right? Now all of a sudden you have $2 of earnings and voila, the stock re-rates uh, very quickly. Or better yet, they sell division B to someone who can make it profitable. And, and maybe that's now an even more valuable business overall. So that's a pattern. Um, but I th And I think that just being really patient and looking at situations where people over-extrapolate the recent past. That's another behavioral pattern that I observed. So, and that happens in both directions. For instance, like on the good side, right? You have like, if a company beat earnings for the last three quarters, clearly they're on a new growth trajectory and they're gonna grow for the last, the next five years. That's kind of how the market thinks. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not too much. On the flip side, right? If a company has had a disappointment of some sort, the market, maybe the first time gives them a pass, but the second time certainly not, right? And so you have this over-extrapolation of recent trends. And that's just natural. It's just how the human mind works. And so I find that if you're focused on predictable businesses, meaning there's some gravitational pull of the business value for why all of a sudden, the, by the way, part of the point of predictable businesses is that their values are unlikely to change rapidly adversely, right? Um, like if you re read security analysis, which I've now read three times, one of the things Graham says is that, you know, the analyst needs to guard against the future. And the first time I didn't get it, but in the second and third reading, it's, well, if you underwrite a business to be worth X, you're worried about future adverse scenarios, which could make it worse, worth far less than X. And so much less than X that even your price margin of safety is not enough to give you a good return. And so if you focus on predictable businesses, then I think within that subset, looking for companies with problems could be fruitful because there's a higher than average chance that those problems are temporary. So one of my core bread and butter patterns is looking for problems within predictable businesses and using fundamental analysis to determine whether the problems are temporary or structural. And to the degree I think they're temporary, uh, kind of combine that with my time horizon arbitrage to basically make the investment, believing that three years from now, five years from now, no one's going to be talking about this if I'm right about the business. So given that that's the style of thing that you're looking for, what's your process for searching for these kinds of businesses? Yeah, so I believe in kind of multi-sourcing and I'll explain what I mean. So I think sometimes people are very focused on one method, whether it's scuttlebutt or whether it's talking to the investors or you know screening. I think that most of those have a place so I have four streams of ideas that I kind of put into the funnel. 
The first is uh, value screens. Everyone uses them. I would say that they're least useful now, but I like within that to focus on kind of a seven-year average free cash flow yield. And the reason I do that is because I think that first eliminates companies that don't have free cash flow, which you know I try not to look at anyway for the most part. Um, and it also kind of stabilizes the valuation away from a temporary peak or, or trough in profitability. That's, you know, that yields some ideas occasionally, but it's been challenging to find things because by the way, like if you're running a screen and you find a stock that's really statistically cheap, like, should you be like really psyched and be like, yes, this is clearly a bargain or like, huh, what's wrong with it? Cause every, I'm not the only guy with a laptop and a Bloomberg, you know, other people have that. So people must've passed on it some, some reason. That's the reason not to invest in it, but it's a reason not to be arrogant and just kind of say, wait, just because it's cheap doesn't mean it's mispriced. Um, so screening is one. I do think that having a list of high quality kind of watch lists, so to speak, is a valuable source of information because those are businesses. I, I won't lie and say I know them all perfectly. I don't because it's a few hundred companies. Some of them I know very well. Some of them I know enough to include on in that list. And that's about it. But that allows me to complement my cheap kind of stream of ideas with companies that maybe not statistically cheap but I know they're pretty darn good businesses. And if there's a temporary price dislocation, it's an invitation for me to dig deeper and look. Uh, and that's global, you know, probably four or 500 companies now that have added to that list. Um, then there's special situation, you know, event uh, driven things where, where it's spin-offs, recapitalization, kind of the standard kind of Joel Greenblatt plus repertoire uh, at this point in time, it still works. It maybe is certainly more followed than the typical, you know, than there was when he wrote, you can be a stock market genius, but it certainly still works. Uh, you just have to be more selective. There are more spinoffs. Not every spinoff is great, but he never said every spinoff has to be great. That's why he had like eight positions or something like that. It's just a positively skewed sub-universe to, to search through. And then the last um, kind of stream is I like to, you know, use other value investors I respect, whether it's a conversation with a small manager who doesn't even file, who I know I like his process or the filings of well-known investors. I find it'll be less useful because what I would really like to know is what would Warren Buffett buy with a hundred million dollars if that's all he was managing. We don't get the information from his filings. We get the information, what does Warren Buffett buy with $500 billion? And that's less, a lot, heck of a lot less interesting. So I find some of the best ideas can come from other smaller, hungrier managers who are not constrained by size. And they also speak the language of intrinsic value investing. Therefore, we might look at things a little differently, but we're at least speaking a common tongue, so to speak. So when you, you, you've described what goes into the top of the funnel, but then how are you filtering and validating those ideas uh, to, for the ones that actually make it through and into the portfolio? Yeah, so I think, you know, earlier on in my career, I was guilty of like a lot of these, like I talked about the newspaper, oh, it's newspaper, I'm not going to touch it. Or I used to say, if anything related to cars, just not going to do it because it's a bad value chain, it's structural and attractive. And I find now that it's better to include things very loosely at the top of the funnel. So I have the, the include step, which I just kind of described. The second step is the kill step, right? And where I'm trying to find if there's anything wrong with it at all, uh, based on my process, I'm going to kill it. The argument being that if there's something that's going to cause me to say no after a lot of work, 
it's better to say no without doing a lot of work, right? So I'm looking for reasons to exclude. And usually, so I'm going through this process now, usually there's a couple of hundred, like a hundred plus stocks at the top of the funnel, very loose. Like an investor respects buy it, buys it, goes into the top. By the way, I erased the source. So I, don't I don't remember which of the four streams the ideas came from because I don't want to be biased that, oh, okay, Warren Buffett bought this. So therefore I'm going to give this greater respect than something else. I try to, once something is in the funnel, it doesn't matter where it came from. Then there's the kill step. And after the kill step, I usually am left with about 15 to 20 uh, investments. So maybe 10% of the universe of the initial universe remains. And then what I do is I probably spend maybe an hour, 30 minutes to an hour in each company. So I'm progressively deepening. I'm a CS junkie from MIT. So I remember from my AI class is you can go all the way down the decision tree to the leaf and come up or you can progressively deepen, right? To one level, exhaust all notes. So that's kind of what I'm doing here. I'm progressively deepening and I'm saying, okay, let me read a presentation. Let me, you know, maybe read a transcript, uh, you know, something like that. And, and you know, let me look up the proxy and see what the management incentives are. And I'm reading the companies on four things. I'm reading them on uh, business, uh, people, and balance sheet, but also complexity, meaning complexity, not of the company, but of the potential thesis, right? You know, how complicated will it be for me to figure out the last mile of whether it's actually a good investment or not? And so what I tend to do is I tend to rank things by, you know, among things that pass, I rank them one, one through five in the process, one being the most actionable, five, you know, four and five is random because once something is below a three, it really doesn't matter. I don't short, so I'm not looking for the symmetry, but, you know, usually uh, on my second pass, some of the things, companies that were two, uh, on the second category, become a three on further examination. Does that eliminate some of that 15 to 20? Others just get a pretty high complexity rating. Like, you know, it's kind of lukewarm attractiveness plus it's pretty complicated. So let's deprioritize that. And I usually get two or three where I like to work on two things in parallel because sometimes you get stuck. Sometimes let's say you're scheduling a call or trying to do a primary research call and just you know, get you know stuck with someone's schedule. So doing a couple at a time, allows me to, at that point, I, I put it through my five-step research process. So I really try to understand the business quality of the first. That's the first, because I think it's a huge mistake to start modeling you know, right away, because it's like garbage in, garbage out. You know, it's like the people with the well, biggest models are not the people who are the best investors, right? Um, but I think understanding the business well enough to make sure you understand the key drivers is really key, key in understanding is it a good enough business to even continue? The step two is, you know, key economic drivers. What are the one, two, three, four things I want to know about the business in five years to really understand its economics? Then step three is financial modeling. Step four is valuation. And step five, which is a little different from some people, is a behavioral checklist. I like to have it be as specific as possible, meaning what are some potential behavioral biases that I might... Um, you know, uh, be followable to because I think a lot of people are much better at playing behavioral offense, meaning taking advantage of mispricings because of behavioral mistakes, than because of than than they are playing behavioral defense, which is being introspective and trying to guard against their own behavioral errors. And I try to have a checklist approach um, so that 
I can't eliminate it. You know, I, I would be arrogant to think I can get get it down to zero, but at least lessen the impact of the behavioral biases. I'm pretty sure I have. Let's talk a little bit about your selling discipline because you've got uh, quite a um, a well thought out structured process for selling. So would you take us through that? Yeah, well, thank you for the compliment because I actually think I struggle with selling. You know, it's probably the weakest part of my process and I don't know how to make it. I'm working on strengthening it. But I mean, the, the best situation, right, is the price to value gap closes. And, you know, I'm very disciplined in that. And so I have, you know, my base, so I have three values, my worst case, my best case, that's the range. And there's the base or the most likely case. And when the stock reaches uh, a certain percentage of the base case, I begin to reduce. So the higher the quality of the business, the closer to full value I get. And partly because in theory, the higher the quality, the more confident am I in the business value and the tighter the range should be. Now, to me, quality means predict, uh, you know, a predictable business. So it would be nonsensical to say something's a high quality business, but its range of outcomes is like the widest ever. Um, unless it's like asymmetric, right? Unless it's like very little downside and there's a long right tail, which could be a really high quality business. So um, for a average business, I try not to deal with below average. So for an average business, I start, start selling at 85% of my base case at, um, and it's about a third, a third, a third. So a third of 85, a third of 90, a third of 95. While it's from my best quality, highest quality businesses, I will sell, start selling at 95, 100, 105. It sounds like really nice and neat, but I find that there's probably a lot of false precision in there. And sometimes I think the bigger question, and this is something I'm struggling with and I'm trying to think through is, how good am I at correctly updating the value? And here's what I mean. I think I've seen this, I mean, I've done this for 20 years now and I've seen enough of my own mistakes and the mistakes of others where I think value investors, even though they try really hard not to be affected by the context when they underwrite the investment initially, really do two things. One is they do let the environment affect their underwriting. Meaning, let's say if you have a cyclical depression and you're buying a uh, company at cyclical low, I find that we all tend to value the business a little bit less than what it's worth or moderate amount less. The reason I think is you can justify the purchase anyway. So why push it, right? And then there's, but that sin that gets paired with a second sin, which is problematic, which is anchoring, right? So I think value investors are taught that you have to like be very disciplined and that we all taught to kind of look down and sell analysts who just stock gets to their price target. They raise their price target, start, stock gets to their price target. They raise it again. Uh, and the price, it's like a carrot in front of a donkey. The price target is not there to be eaten. It's there to, you know, move the donkey forward, right? So uh, it happens all the time. So we, as value investors, are taught, like, uh-uh, you can't behave that way because that's weak. That's undisciplined. And so in our quest for discipline, I think there is this potential for behavioral error of just anchoring because there's two things that happens to values. One is there is a natural uncertainty, right? Like we're not sure what something is worth. And two is values change, right? Like think about a gold mine, right? You thought there's a 50% chance of striking a gold vein and you have some expected value. Well, if you actually strike the gold, it's now 100%, it's there. So the value has to be higher after you struck the gold. But I think, and obviously using this as an analogy, I think we as value investors frequently uh, don't update for the business equivalent of stri uh, striking the gold enough. 
And I, so I've been guilty of selling too early so many times that it's painful that I almost don't want to sell anymore. Now, I know it's a bias because it's a rising market and this will change. But I think even adjusting for the rising market, I think that there is serious anchoring that's happening where just like many value investors, I'm probably guilty of selling winners too early and holding on to losers too, um, uh, too long. So what I've done is I've put together this thesis tracker and this thesis tracker, tracker has all my stocks and it has color-coded boxes for each quarter. And, for, and the color is from bright green to bright, to bright red and the shades in the middle, that there's five levels. I'm not trying to be too, too cute there. And each quarter I judge the new information against the thesis as either you know, po strong positive surprise, not against the, the street numbers, but against my thesis. If my thesis is business should grow 5%, give or take, and it grows 15, that would be a bright green uh, box. But if it grows minus 10, that would be a bright red box, for instance, right? Uh, and I'm not trying to, I'm not using any excuses. It doesn't matter if it was a one-time charge or if it was a cyclical recession. I'm trying to not allow some kind of a narrative bias to creep in and say, no, I know that it was minus 10, but there are these three extending circumstances. No, let's just put the facts versus expectations. And then what I do is I force, if I have, you know, several disappointments, you know, in a row, like three, I'll re-underwrite from scratch. Uh, and that's to lessen the probability of holding on to a loser for too long. Conversely, if I have several moderate surprises or one really big surprise, I, even if it's at a hundred cents in a dollar, I don't sell at first re-underwrite uh, again, because I'm saying there's a signal there that potentially I'm too anchored in my original value. So I know this is a short question, probably expecting a short answer, but I think it's a complicated topic because it's easy to be mathematically disciplined, but you want to also make sure you get your, in a Bayesian updating sense, properly processing new information as it comes in around the business. Because like as Peter Lynch once said, you know, you don't want to be watering the, uh, the weeds and cutting the flowers. That would be tragic. I did notice that uh, that chart in your in your I think it was in your letter, and I, I I thought it was really impressive. The other thing that I really liked is you track your portfolio against what you think the base value is. So at any given time, you know roughly your whole portfolio versus what you think the portfolio was worth. Can you just talk a little bit about that uh, graphic yeah. that you include chart? Yeah, sure. The price to I mean it's helpful because for a few reasons. Um, first, it tells me a little bit about um, how attractive things are. And, and by the way, I don't time the market, but I let cash be a residual. So sometimes I will have cash, um, which by the way, if you cannot be an absolute value investor and not have a possibility of owning cash, because if you have to be fully invested by definition, you're a relative value investor, which is not, that, that's not a put down, but it's just a different thing. So I'm an absolute value investor, which means that my buys are disconnected from my sales. Meaning if something reaches my sell point uh, that we just discussed uh, and there's nothing to buy, it goes into cash. So I think one thing that price to value, which is again, is the weight average ratio of all the price to values for the holdings, value being the base case value of that range. It lets me see, well, okay, you know, how attractive is the portfolio on average? Um, I do play around, I don't have like some optimizer. I do play around with it a little bit, but there's also this, you, you wanna be careful about optimizing for the lowest number because it's, that's one dimension but the other dimension is quality, right? Where would I rather have an amazing business at 70% of value 
or a average business of 50. Right? So if you're just trying to get that number as low as possible, you're kind of climbing the to, to the top of a very short hill sometimes. Another thing that this price to value uh, kind of chart lets me you know, communicate with my partner. Sometimes partners uh, uh, ask me, hey, is this a good time to add capital? Of course, the answer is always and the more the better, but the joke and you know, uh, mark, sales, uh, salesmanship aside, it allows me to answer that a little bit more fact-based. And usually what I say is, look, right now, um, which is the case, the portfolio is in the 60s, mid 60s percent of intrinsic value. And there's pretty good dispersion, meaning it's not like one company is at 10 and everything is at 90. So, you know, that I can honestly tell you that right now I could put the money to work, which by the way, doesn't mean that you shouldn't, if the, say if it was at 80, you know, hopefully someone is partnering with me for many years. So they shouldn't just use the current attractions of the portfolio. But if, you know, if they wanted to know it's now a particularly good time, it gives me a more objective way of answering that. And uh, I think it also allows me to monitor over time. So I like the time series aspect of it of saying, okay, um, where has the portfolio been uh, in price to value? Also, after a long enough period of time, what have been maybe the subsequent five-year returns or something like that from low point and price to value versus a higher point? Presumably, if I'm roughly right in the value, if you know, I'm starting with a lower price to value, the ex post ante returns should be higher than if I'm starting from a higher price to value. But you know, the partnership has been up and running for five years, so I don't have enough five-year rolling periods uh, to, to have the answer to that yet. Well, it's, uh, it's a very methodical process, Gary. I commend you for it. If, if folks are interested in talking to you further or following along with what you do, how do they go about doing that? Sure. You know, always happy if you connect with me on LinkedIn. You can reach me at Gary at silveringvaluepartners.com, all one word. And if you actually spell it correctly, you'll actually reach me. So uh, uh, I also write uh, probably monthly articles on behavioralvalueinvestor.com. So you know, about value investing and behavioral finance. So happy to get feedback. Uh, you know, just start a dialogue anytime. Gary Mashuris, Silver Ring Value Partners. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tobias. I really appreciate you having me. <laughs>